I'm your host, Quasi Joe Blow. Today I'm going to be talking with another friend of mine. We've been friends since high school, and he's gone all the way through school to get his PhD and to be an educator. He got uh he went and got his bachelor's in um in engineering, and then he went on to get his master's. I don't know how sure, and then he went on and uh he's got his PhD in educating uh educating, right? Yeah, my uh, bachelor's is in mechanical. Same okay. for my master's, mechanical engineering, and then my PhD is in STEM education with a focus on engineering education okay yeah so this is the person we'll be interviewing and his name is Leroy so how's it going Leroy uh, pretty good all things considered I mean healthy got that's, resources that's what's most important right now that's good so um because you're the are you the only educator in your family are you the only person that chose education I know your father he did it through more through religion and education but um are you the only one through uh like academia that does education I mean, I believe so. I recently found out that my mother's uh, grandfather was a pastor as well. So he was doing something similar to my father, but on opposite sides of the family. But in thinking about it, I can't recall anyone else who's in education. Okay. So where, you know, we went to Wright State together and you went to get your master's at Ohio State, right? Yeah. Where'd you get your PhD? At Ohio State also. As well. So what was the... uh? Was education something you went into college knowing that you were going to do? Because we went to high school together. We were in an international baccalaureate program, so we received a lot of our high school education together. But we went different routes. I went more, like, with creativity and stuff. And, like, was education something that was before college, or was that already on your mind, or was it, you know? No, so it, it first came about when I went to Ohio State to get my master's. I uh, had an opportunity to be funded through a teaching position. Uh-huh. So I was teaching a recitation section for a mechanical engineering class for undergrads. And when I started doing that, I just really uh, enjoyed teaching. Mm -hmm. And it funded me all throughout my master's and my PhD. I switched classes and the topics at times, mainly introductory engineering courses, but that's when I really fell in love with it. And I heard about a class called College Teaching and Engineering. Mm -hmm. And then they were talking about the potential for a PhD in engineering education or something similar to it and potentially even having that program at Ohio State. Mm. So that's when I started to think about education. And I mean, I knew engineering has a great impact on the world. Like pretty much every product thing you interact with, an engineer mm -hmm. has touched it at some point in time. But I felt like to help increase the number of people who look like us going into the field and just to really help with other things that are going on in society from um, you know pollution to poverty, uh, just so many other things that we deal with in the black community, education seemed like a more impactful route than just going to industry as an engineer. So having an impact is the most important thing to you and what you want to use, like all the experiences and, you know, knowledge and resources you've gained through, like, you know, through school. Mostly you want to turn it right back around and give it back to people. Yeah, I know one mentor of mine at Ohio State, Dr. James Moore, he was saying that um, he wanted to go where he could be the greatest good to his people. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember hearing that until I had already thought about getting my PhD, but it solidified my thought process and that, yeah, I could go in industry, make a lot of money, rise up in corporate America. I was pretty successful in my internship at Toyota, mm -hmm. which was emerging and about to become the number one automotive company. They were number two at the time. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, had a lot of success. Could have seen myself rising up the ranks pretty fast there. We got paid a lot of money, yeah. you know, especially to be that young. It was to an extent similar to athletics where I you know, 18 year old kid going off into another state, 
because it was in Kentucky, uh, yeah, Georgetown, Kentucky, which is like an hour from Cincinnati, hour and a half from Louisville. But I was making, you know, crazy amounts of money. To yeah, I remember you telling me that. Yeah, compared to any job I had in high school, so it was alluring. But at the same point in time, again, I just didn't see myself impacting my community, and I knew what automobiles did to the black community. Yeah, like my family, um, especially on my mother's side, my grandfather and his family moved to the north because of yeah. manufacturing automobiles. Mm. And I think a lot of black people prospered in the Midwest as a result of that. We were yeah. able to get higher paying jobs. Some of us became homeowners, you know, and mm. so it created small amount of generational wealth doesn't appear to a lot of our white counterparts and some of the things they accumulated through, you know, enslavement and unjust means. Yeah. But I knew that the automobile had a great impact. I'm working for an automobile company and I still didn't feel like it was what I wanted yeah. to ultimately do. So, like, because, you know, we grew up basically in the hood together, you know, and we went to Meadowdale. I mean, it was so much that people called it ghetto jail. So, us being in the International Baccalaureate Program was, um, like, because I want to get into, like, what education meant to you. I mean, you know, it, like, because we, it's me, you, Bobby, and uh, Jordan, and we're all, like, friends. And I think education was the common ground that we wanted to be smart. We enjoyed it, the process of learning. What is your thoughts looking back on education while we were in the hood? Because, I mean, one, about, you know, what the International Baccalaureate Program did for us, but all the other things outside of that, because education at Meadowdale was pretty, existed to none outside of maybe the honors program and the IB program. So, like, you know, because you're impactful, because you also have a program that you're doing to impact kids and as far as it was to do with sports and STEM. So having that, and you've like acquired a lot of good information and knowledge and relationships with people already. So what do you look back on with the education back when? Because it was, you know, it, it was really no education for a lot of people. What is your views on that? So something else I should say, since you said, you know, growing up in the hood, two of us, you know, you and Jordan were more so living in the hood, and a lot of my family and friends did mm-hmm. just like you all. But then Bobby. And me, we both were in Trotwood, or at least the border of Dayton and Trotwood. Yeah. So we were more so what you would call hood adjacent. I, I haven't watched many episodes of the TV show, but I think it's similar where you're like just on the outskirts, but yeah. you're constantly going through, living in, and experiencing the hood. Yeah. But I, I don't want to, you know, do a disservice to those who had to sleep in the hood because that wasn't my story. You yeah. Know? I went over there for my grandparents, yeah. friends, and family, but I was always able to go to again the border of you know a black predominantly black suburb or at least what eventually became predominantly black suburb in childhood so our environments were a little bit different uh, and i consider myself to be a cultural straddler because of that you know i was able to see what it was like to kind of live in a suburb and then also see what it was like to kind of live in the city and that Mm -hmm. changed my perspective on things from playing sports in Trotwood to seeing their education opportunities how beautiful and nice and big their schools were compared to ours and then you drive down you know, to the predominantly white areas, and you see even bigger ones like in Kettering and Oakwood, yeah. uh, other high schools, Centerville. Uh, I remember it was Vandalia Butler. Yeah, Their arenas yeah. and schools look like college campuses to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, so those were early things that I noticed about education was a divide in terms of resources, facilities, and yeah. how I don't know if I told you this before, but I've been more uh, vocal about it recently. On my side of the street, you went to Dayton Public Schools. On the opposite side of the street, I remember you telling me that back yeah. So I was literally on the division line between the inner city and that predominantly, or at least what became a predominantly black suburb. Mm-hmm. So again, knowing that that difference existed, and if I had just grown up on the opposite side of the street, I would have had access to completely different education opportunities. And then my mother, mm-hmm. because she worked in corporate America and was a first generation college student and graduate, 
she told me she intentionally placed us in the inner city. She yeah. wanted us to go to school with people who look like us. Mm-hmm. She wanted us to have teachers who look like us. Uh, and I know there was another family, even more affluent because the father was a medical doctor, and they made a similar choice. Yeah. And I would imagine Bobby's parents did too because they are graduates of HBCUs. Yep. So we knew the value in being around people who look like us, people who cared about us, um, especially given the history of integration where you had black kids just trying to go to school and get a good education. Mm-hmm. They're being spat on. Rocks are being thrown at them. You yeah. know, these are little kids. Yeah. All right. So you know that history and Dayton being very racially divided. Whites pretty much on the west side of town, the affluent sides outside of that. Blacks mm-hmm. mainly, or sorry, blacks mainly on the west side, whites mainly on the east side. And then even how the suburbs are divided too. Um, whites being more east and south, blacks being more west and going towards the north. So all of that was apparent to me. And then we went to school in those inner city circumstances. I knew the advantage of being at honors or IB, like you mentioned, and having access to the quote unquote best teachers. Yeah. Because the best teachers are rewarded by getting the best students, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then in that, we kind of lived in a bubble. Um, not to say we were naive, but we got the best of everything. Again, the mm-hmm. best teachers. If there was some resource in the school, we got that. Um, you know, the school actually looked better because of us. They knew that. Oh, uh, yeah. We did good things in terms of test scores. We would go on to better schools, get mm-hmm. better jobs. And so, again, we benefited from that. And I was very aware. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I constantly tried to do, and it wasn't always conscious. It was just me being myself. I was never afraid to be smart. Yeah, I never felt like a smart kid had to dress or look or act a certain way. So I yeah. was just me. Uh, and some people didn't even realize that, you know, we were that high achieving academically. Mm-hmm. But I tried to set an example that, yes, this is this is actually cool. This is all right. And I even remember some athletes because I grew up playing sports, but stopped in middle school. Yeah. How like when you get to middle school, they were kind of put on a pedestal for the first time. I really saw it. Yeah. At least in school, outside of school, to an extent. Yeah. You always got a little bit of social kind of praise from playing sports but in the school i saw how they were like kings you know yeah, at least yeah. at fairview where i went from middle school and in high school we weren't as competitive as my middle school but it was still this perceived elevation and in my mind based on what i had seen and i wasn't trying to kill anyone's dreams i remember even telling your brother jeremiah like a lot of these dudes not making it out of here you mm-hmm. know and they're putting all this time and energy into it and they're so cocky and confident when i'm like these books are the way out yeah. So I remember when it was jokes about stuff or guys saying, I was thinking like, I'm the cool kid. And I didn't yeah. mean that as an arrogant sense, but that my mind was mature and wise enough to see that this path was wider yeah. than the sports path, you know? And so that's where, you know, that's why I think why we stay friends, because one of the things I think that is uh, particularly that I like is the fact that you're yourself. You don't really put on fronts. You're honest and you're honestly yourself. I think that... um with a lot of kids around us that were educated outside of the international baccalaureate program, I think a big thing for them was to always fit in or to uphold. I think when we were in uh, the international, we'll just call it the IB program, we were reading books that like like people in, you know, from what it seems like when I went to college that people were damn in grad school were like, y'all read that stuff like in 11th, 12th grade? So I think, it, you know, it was interesting how our education was promoting us to be ourselves and to get into our minds and our thoughts and emotions or intellect or whatever, creativity. And I'm, like, really fortunate. Like I say, our teacher, mainly behind us, her name was Miss Nickel. And, like, you know, for a while I hit her up for years saying thanks for exposing me for the things that you did because it really, like, it elevated my mind. I wasn't, I was like a kid kind of, I was kind of obsessed with basketball and all of that, but, you know, and hanging out and just, like, you know, as far as being a kid, but... 
her like her and the interaction with her with education was always like it stimulated me to want to be myself ultra more because it was like the way she had us like interpreting things and understanding it was just way beyond us and i think that was good that that happened for us yeah i mean i definitely uh, appreciate miss nichols so shout out to her and i know she drove all the way from yellow springs which yep. is where dave Chappelle lives just to educate us so i appreciate that sacrifice yep uh and she was somewhat critical of things that, that white people had mm-hmm. and, and presented white people in a negative light at times and back then you know we were thinking well who are you even bringing these topics up because yeah. you're a white woman but i think in hindsight given the um kind of red carpeting or always putting the best foot forward that i see from other white individuals in society i appreciate that she was at least vulnerable enough to say yeah. no this slavery was wrong yeah and you know these other injustices that exist are wrong and that you are bright she was the first person to call us a scholar yeah and the crazy thing is i'm labeled that now having a phd and being a professor so that was the first time i heard it not to say that i wasn't still getting it from home because my parents poured into me you know grandparents aunts uncles te- mm-hmm. black teachers so the black community was strong but that was the first white person to say yeah like you're a scholar you know you you got this and yeah. i knew that her and a black woman miss snellings they were college certified to teach so miss nichols and miss um, snellings again mm-hmm. white woman and black woman both were college certified so the yeah. fact they took college certification and still came down and taught and taught us i was like humbled by that yeah the same was true for mr folks a black male who i had in middle school and what was unique about my middle school experience at fairview is i got to take algebra one and geometry in middle school mm-hmm. so you think about what that did for me in terms of being able to go into stem to have such early exposure to math and mm-hmm. then in science i had a lady named miss porter and she had the summer enrichment program called Right Step, which is how a lot of inner city yeah. kids got to go to Right State for free, at least yeah. in terms of tuition. So all of those things were huge in terms of me getting to where I am. So yeah, definitely shout out to Miss Nickel, Miss Snellings, Mr. Linda Moo. Oh yeah, Mr. Um, I really appreciate him. With yeah, this. Mr. Johnson, a lot, a lot of people. Miss Spurlock, um, yeah. Mr. Horowitz, again, yeah, yeah Mr. Folks, Miss um, Porter, Miss Babs. I have a lot of teachers, you know, Mr. Steinmetz. Unfortunately, he passed away, but yeah, a lot of people who've done uh, great things. Even elementary school teachers, Miss Lacey, who passed away, Miss March. Uh, they they made me who I am to an extent. That's good, man. And so, with you know having like a strong like background in education, as far as like being educated, like from like you know high school on. What was this? When did you know you wanted to start your? What is you know? Give everybody the name of your uh, STEM program and everything you want to do with it. Because when did that start? When you wanted to start STEM and really start to like? I mean, it's not start STEM, but start your program to where you know people in sports and people in education could like merge and then make serious lane for people who had a you know a knack for both. So like, what is what is it that you're doing? So there are kind of two parts to it, but they overlap to an extent. Uh, so as a faculty member who's on the tenure track which means that you have like six to seven years to pursue excellence in teaching, research, and service. And if you're at a big university, it'll flip. It's research first, then teaching, then service. Mm -hmm. All right. So in doing that, you try to establish like a research brand, a research niche, what's something people haven't been doing. And then some people call themselves eventually an expert. Now, I don't really like that term just because it typically um, reinforces marginalization of certain people Mm. so if only white men are going into stem or engineering and then we label those people experts then you're saying that a black person or a woman who never got access to it is not an expert when Mm. they just didn't get access to it Mm. so i like to say i pursue expertise uh, because i have passion and i put in time and energy into it but i don't want to call myself an expert because i recognize that there are people who have lived experiences 
who could be, you know, in a similar position. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking to myself, and you talked about me trying to stay real to who I am. I recognize that sports is very important in my Mm -hmm. community, you know, especially amongst black men. It is a path out. Again, it may be more narrow in my mind than education, but it is a path. I mean, we had Norris Cole Mm -hmm. come out of Dayton. And our generation, a few years younger than us, Daquan Cook. Yep. Also, they even played on the same high school team uh, for Dunbar at one state. And then you have Derek Brown came yep. out, went to my elementary school. Norris was in right step with me. Yep. Uh, then there are other guys who you know I learned about a little bit later, but they made it out as well. And then if you go back really far, you have like Ron Harper who played with Jordan yep. with the Bulls. He came out of Dayton, Ohio. You have Edwin C. Moses who ran track and was an Olympian, came out of Dayton, Ohio. So. And then I'll say Nashawn Goddard, just something and a football player too. Uh, his little brother went to school with my sister. But all of these dudes made it. So there was a sign that you could, you know, make it through sports. But yep. in my mind, it was still more narrow. So that's just something I knew was real. And to this day, we still talk about sports a lot. We watch it. Uh, I mean, I know we don't play as much as we used to, but yeah. we still try to kind of, uh, you know, test out our abilities as we're aging and stay in shape to the yeah. best of our ability. So I, that's something that's real to me. And if I want kids to be interested in STEM or engineering specifically, you have to meet them where they are. Mm. And again, because of the limited ways you can make it out of the quote unquote hood or obtain you know, financial success or feel like you can circumvent racism mm-hmm. through wealth and, uh, and other means of success, I knew that sports was a path. So I'm like, that's part of me. And then I also ended up adding arts to it mm-hmm. because I can draw uh, by hand. And I feel like at least you... Um, Jordan and I, we bonded through creativity. Yeah. And then the four of us all bonded through sports. And Bobby probably has a creative gene that he hasn't fully tapped into, mm-hmm. even in terms of his uh, humor yeah. uh, and other things he brings to light. And then I know you and I were really big on fashion back then, and then probably mm-hmm. Jordan after us, and I consider that part of art as yeah. well. So I'm like, this is who I am. I'm a person who has unique experiences in sports, and even stopped playing it much early than, uh, earlier than other people. Uh, and then art that's something i kind of stopped doing but brought back and i just merged that with my day-to-day job and outside of it i've always wanted to do something that's kind of entrepreneurial yeah and so when my father-in-law passed away uh from cancer i i was remembering that he had a restaurant and it was funny that my wife didn't even really know about this business venture until he mentioned it to me Mm. but like when he passed i'm just thinking how you know time is so short you don't really know what's next and i'm thinking why wait any longer to do this? You know, I've, I've mm-hmm. thought about having something on my own. I do this for quote unquote the man or for someone else, you know? Yeah. And, and they're compensating me well to do it, but what am I doing on my own time? Yeah. And because you and I had talked about a poetry book. Yeah. Um, and I know you had put one out maybe a decade before in undergrad. I wanted to make sure that when I started to make business moves, it was separate from my day job. Yeah. So yeah. like if I have an LLC, which is called We Need More. Uh, then I can put it under there. But we need more. I was kind of playing off of the Verizon commercial from years past where it was LeBron and Drew Brees. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I can't think who else was in it. was a model. Uh, I think Adriana Lima and yeah, a, a yeah. couple other people, but they were promoting STEM and saying, even though I'm this successful person in this field, you all should really consider STEM. We need more people going into STEM. So it was kind of a playoff of that and using famous individuals to try to champion the cause. So I started that mainly for our books initially, but then to try to increase the number of students going into STEM. So were you in uh, undergrad? Were you getting your master's or PhD when you knew you wanted to start this program? 
so to be honest, I've always wanted to have a business. Like as a kid, I um, I thought about doing something in the automotive like industry. And I remember when I got that job at Toyota and I was interviewing, I told them I was thinking about starting like an automotive uh, retail shop yeah. or repair shop. I even had a friend who lived in the hood hood and he did repairs on my car. And I was, was telling him like, you know, if you want to do something big, I'll invest in it. I'll try yeah. to own the shop because I feel like I want you to be empowered and mm-hmm. to have economic success. His name is Justin. Uh, Andrews, he actually just had a birthday recently, so that was one thing that was always on my mind. I mean, I did. Um, hopefully, I'm past the the time in which this matters legally. If not, we may need to cut this out. But I sold CDs in high school, <laughs> so that was yeah. like a business venture just to put some extra money in my pocket. Yeah. So I, I was always thinking of like, how can I have something on my own? I never saw myself being satisfied by yeah. fully just working for someone else. And then as I got older, I even thought about things like stocks and real estate yeah so it was always on my mind to do something of my own okay so what was the point at where you were like i'm going to do this like this is what i'm going to do i know that i can do it because you've even been able to um immediately like you know meet people from like the players from the orlando magic building this program and everything so it's taken way for you in a really good positive direction so what was the point where you like i'm going to do this so it was, uh, I think, about two years ago when we started talking about the poetry, and I saw this Netflix movie called Love Beats Rhymes with Common, mm-hmm. and Jill Scott, uh, I think Azalea Banks. Those are probably the most prominent people in it. Uh, and Denzel Washington's son, who I know is an emerging actor, he was in it as well. But I saw that, and I remembered I wrote poetry in elementary school, and I just stopped doing it. And I thought, you know, Ron does it. I did it when I was young. Maybe I should just try this. And to be honest, I think one of my most impactful poems was the first one I wrote still, which challenges me to come back because I don't want to be like, you know, one hit wonder. Put out your best product first. But it was called Fatherless Son. That was the first one I wrote, you know, after watching that. And I'm thinking, again, I want to keep this separate from my job. So when it came to the point we were finalizing the book, we had enough poems, we thought we could put it out, which I think was about a year and a half ago. That's mm-hmm. when I was like, I need to do this. Yeah. We were wanting to do that. My father-in-law had just passed, you know, Calvin Corbin. So I thought to myself, you know, I need to make this happen. There's no point of waiting because life isn't promised. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really went for it. And with the um, opportunity to meet Aaron Gordon and volunteer with his coding camp, a lot of that really came from his mother. She's putting a lot of the groundwork in. Mm-hmm. And we... I believe to an extent she's using his name, you know, just to attract people. Not to say he doesn't still have a heart for it, but his time mm. is more limited. She's retired. She worked um, at Intel in Portland, Oregon. So we had kind of a synergy. I happened to reach out to a reporter who mentioned the story, mm-hmm. who wrote the story about the camp, and he, I guess, contacted her. She emailed me directly, and That's I nice. ended up kind of showing up. And then at that time, because I was just starting the company, uh, and doing things along those lines, I really thought about what are resources students need. And she mentioned scholarships. I put together a whole resource page on my website, trying to target students. Uh, but for the most part, it's just been the books and me volunteering my time. I would like to get to a point where I have, you know, regular hands-on activities and larger yeah. partnerships that are being um, scaled up. But I think with COVID happening, it just kind of slowed everything down in terms of progress. So what challenges with building something like this? And you, I know, like, because you're a person and it's that, you you know, like professional or racial or even economic, like what are the biggest challenges for you going and trying to set up a program that a black man is trying to make sure that, you know, black people and uh, can walk through like, you know, scientific doors, you know, 
any artistic doors, you know, all types of things. So, like, what is something that you've noticed is, like, a challenge for you? Well, um, ironically, you mentioned that connection with an NBA player. So, Aaron Gordon's mom, Shelly, she actually told me when I uh, mentioned the program to her or the LLC Mm -hmm. and that I hadn't transitioned it into a 501c3, which is a nonprofit designation. Mm -hmm. She was like, you know, people aren't going to donate without it having that designation. Yeah. So um, I still haven't done it yet to this day, but I've started to look into it. And part of the reason I didn't want to initially is I didn't know what type of success we would experience with the books. Yeah. And I wasn't aware of the difference between, you know, getting money, if it's a nonprofit versus an LC, and if it just blew up and became a New York Times bestseller, I didn't want to limit, you know, you being able to get royalties from it or me or vice versa. Yeah. So that's something I still have in the back of my mind, and it really just talks about the need for resources. Mm. So just like our early exposure to education and the parts of town we lived on and comparing our school to the other ones, I mean, I can't do much without resources. I have a, a good paying job, but I have bills, you know, and yeah, just regular yeah. day-to-day responsibilities like anyone else. So the number one thing would be resources. I would need that in terms of capital, you know, financial. And I think even more important than resources, but it's just harder to get them sometime Mm. on your own is people, Mm. you know, so just having connections, like knowing someone like her, uh, knowing the people I've met in academia, knowing the fact that I know Norris Cole and Derek Brown and others from Dayton, Sean Goddard, who made it. Yeah. Um, become professional athletes that gives me a platform to potentially take this to another level even chuck richardson is the athletic director for trotwood so i mentioned i grew up right there on the border and i know yeah. their athletic director now um you know one of my friends christian armstrong he designs t-shirts cuts hair my cousin levon also cuts hair and they can both draw mm-hmm. so knowing people who like are on the ground level and can do these things that i want to bring into stem they can constantly provide feedback yeah and help same for Devin, who designed you know the image on our first book yeah. So I think having those people connections matters even more than the money, but the money is harder to get even yeah. while knowing those people. At least being black, you know, maybe yeah. if I were affluent and white, I could just call my uncle and my father and you know neighbor, and they would just give me the money I need. But that's not my reality. Being a young black man. Okay. So like, so people that's listening know we, uh, me and Leroy, about we have two books, and it's just poetry, and where we get together. And, you know, we get into, like, more of, like, introspective, retrospective about our lives, thoughts, emotions. And we collaborate and we write two-part books, excuse me, of poetry. And so this is an extens- you know, extension from where we're using education to try to reach people through, you know, more artistic feel. So we're getting into that. What was the, um, what did you have, because I know you, because since you're in academia directly, you're dealing with so many people from different walks of life, different types of educators, different types of whatever you can get into. What was the, um, cause I know you just picked up writing poetry, got good at it. And you know, you start putting it out. What, as far as the educate, like did that lend to education as far as like, you know, you being able to educate people, was it an education process for you? Yeah. I mean, it was humbling to say the least because you know, you get to a certain level. And again, I mentioned that expert, uh, versus pursuing expertise kind of comparison mm-hmm. but when you're in school you're constantly studying mm-hmm. and then you potentially are rewarded for that studying through good grades or a high paying job opportunity and because i've made it to the point where i have a phd and i get to control some of that by being on the other side as a professor and a, mm-hmm. a teacher there's not anyone kind of checking me in terms of my growth in an area or making me start from the bottom but i like poetry kind of forced me back down Mm. at least in that area and to a level of discomfort when it comes to public speaking because although uh, another poem in that first book poetic justness 
it's called Frozen by Fear. I mentioned mm-hmm. the fear of uh, public speaking and how that was huge for me Yeah, when I was younger and just socialization to an extent in general, but mainly due to public speaking. I am very comfortable with it now in mm-hmm. most settings. Like the only time I've been really uncomfortable in recent years, I did present at the NCAA's convention uh, because of a grant I got. Uh, and nice. I was blessed to receive that. And, and because I thought it was going to be maybe... That's like 50 people at the most, 100, and it was thousands in this huge room. Yeah. I was like, oh. So I kind of had to like pet myself up for a minute. Yeah. Realize, you know, God brought me there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all human. Just take a deep breath. You got it. Um, but that was a little daunting. But outside of that, you know, I speak on a daily basis pretty much as a faculty member, you know, in the classroom, even outside of it. So when I had to do poetry, it required me to, again, think. I'm not skilled in this. I don't have a lot of experience in this, and especially if I share it in person, which I've done mm-hmm. you know, on my campus and in a few other venues. But like, this is new to me. Oh, this must be more so what it's like for my students, you know. And of course, I haven't been out of school that long, mm-hmm. but it's easy to start forgetting or to not put yourself in their shoes. So that was something that humbled me and helped me connect with my students, especially the vulnerability piece. You know, in poetry, you're a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah. Than people are in life and if you make the comparison of poetry to sports sports at least in the way i was conditioned when i was younger it was like you don't really show any weakness mm-hmm. if anything you try to exploit the weakness of your competitors yeah where in poetry you're putting yourself out there more like eminem in the eight mile battle rap i'm gonna expose my weaknesses and dare you to try to find something else to say no yeah you know yeah, yeah. so I, I think that's kind of how it is and that helped me and then the last thing i didn't mention about the llc we need more is I wanted to do business ventures initially that a young person could see themselves doing too. Mm-hmm. So because we self-published the books, anyone could really do that. I wrote most of my poems. I think all of them actually on my phone. You wrote them just on a notepad. Yeah. Anyone can pick up, you know, those devices and do it. Uh, we got a friend to just draw the cover. There are a lot of talented artists locally in most parts of the country. And then definitely I know it to be a fact in Ohio and places like Dayton. So you can find someone to do artwork if you want to incorporate it. So I thought that was something that was easy. And even starting the LLC, you just go to your government's website mm-hmm. and it should be pretty reasonable if you have you know some level of money coming in or some money saved. It's less than like $100 to start. Mm-hmm. You also file um, with the government to have a tax ID number and then you can open a bank account, which mm-hmm. is pretty easy. Some banks do charge a monthly fee for having a, a company designated with them, it could be $5, but if you're able to generate $5 in revenue, that's just mm-hmm. $60 a year. So all of it is easier than people realize, whether yeah. that's to design t-shirts like you once did, mm. cut hair like I'm also able to do, and you want mm-hmm. to turn that into a business, designing websites, apps, and you know, some women and people and guys too, I don't just limit to women, they do pottery yeah. and other arts and crafts. So there's just so many different ways that someone could turn their creative talents into a business and I mm-hmm. wanted to inspire people to do something similar. Now, I know real estate and things like that are going to be harder. Yeah. If I said, well, I have these real estate investments, then it starts a conversation, do you have credit? Mm. Do you have a savings account? And that can be more intimidating yeah. and out of reach for someone. But if I'm starting with things that other students could do, just kids could do, even people our age, then I think it's more inspirational and then build up to the bigger things that maybe just supply finances to the other efforts. Yeah, so do you, um, because you have multiple talents, you have multiple interests. If you say, like, when you're 75 years old, 80, what is what do you want 
from all these multiplicities and you know that you have as far as like uh, talents, interests, ability, what do you want people to take from that in the end? Because you can you're gonna have impacts on your family, friends, strangers. Like, what is the one medium that you want to have as far as impact on everybody? Because I'm a person of faith, um, a follower of Christ, I believe that we are created for a unique purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have a unique path. But I don't think a lot of people take the time to try to figure it out. Mm. And even when they do try to figure it out in a capitalist society, uh, and not trying to just demonize ours, but in general, people will find use for you if you don't know your own purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, because I have business ideas and because I do research and I teach. If I had students who aimlessly just came in and they're like, I don't know what I want to do. Or even if they do think they know what they want to do, I could manipulate that if I had, you know, improper motivation or just thought I was doing good for them. Yeah. But I've got to the point where, again, I realized that there is no person like us. Yeah. You know, you could be a twin, sibling, have someone very similar to you, but there's still only one version of each of us. Yeah. And God did that intentionally. Mm-hmm. So then you have to figure out why did God make you? What is it that God put in you? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I'm hoping to get people to bring out and think of. And, and so for me, I feel like I found some of that, which is through education. Um, always been family oriented. Always cared about friendships, mentorship, and things of that sort. But professionally, I think a lot of it is through education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a motto that I um, had coined like less than a year ago, but it's lead with love, follow it with justice. Yeah. And I think that's also part of it is I just want to show love to people, help them see their path, their God given calling, and then connect that to some like career potentially. And then the justice piece is saying, well, yeah, I mean, you might want to earn some money so you can pay your bills, but are you helping people? You know, yeah. are you making the world better than you left it or you found it, you know? Um, and are you doing that across like racial lines, across gender? Yeah. Uh, across socioeconomics and not just concerned about you and yours so that, that's really what i'm about but i wouldn't say that i fully figured out you know, everything for myself but i'm at least open to learning more about it and praying about it and trying to mm-hmm. you know, figure out discernment as i i walk this life every day so you brought up an interesting thing I, that i feel that i'm really about is that if you don't know your purpose somebody will find a purpose for you and i think you know, since we've, excuse me, since we were kids, I've always been like, I always wanted to stick with what I felt, you know, was instinctually guiding me. And uh, when I got to college, you know, I started realizing, you know, not even because I, I think that everybody should go get educated. I believe in education. I believe everybody should, even outside of edu- like college, educate yourself on multiple things. But like when I got to college, I started to realize because I had to get a job. And so I was working with people older than me. And I can see that, you know, I'm like an 18 year old kid, so I can pay my car note or go to college, get some clothes. As to where some people, it was their, they, they were, they felt it was their purpose to be like a working at a call center for a cable company. And I would be looking at these people and it made me feel so much anxiety and understanding that, uh, you know, like I must find my purpose. I must let it flow through me no matter what I go through because, like, I don't want that was like a fear for me almost. Like somebody finding my purpose and then, like, I look up and I'm 60 and I'm working in a factory. And so were you, um, cause like I say, one thing I always felt similar between me and you is that like, you know, I think we may show it different is that, you know, you roll with yourself, you know what I'm saying? You don't even really put people down in a sense, but that you roll with yourself. What was the, did you have a sense of purpose when you were a kid? Did you feel like, you know, purpose was something that was strong within you or even finding a purpose? Was that something that was strong on your mind? So I mentioned that 
again, I found out recently my mother's grandfather was a pastor. Mm-hmm. And then my father was a minister. So I grew up in his household, going to his churches until my parents divorced mm-hmm. in the element, end of elementary school. And uh, I didn't admit this until recent years, but I felt like I was called into ministry as well from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't remember if that was like elementary, middle school, but I, I've always been set apart and different. Yeah. Uh, and not in a arrogant way no, I understand. or like that, but I've always felt like God wanted me to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And then I started to run from it, kind of like Jonah mm-hmm. in the Bible, you know. So I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be like my father. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like a minister because I saw the pros and cons of it. Some people only see the good. They go to church. They get inspired by the pastor. Uh, a lot of pastors in the U.S., too, they live pretty affluent lifestyles. Yeah. So it's a lot of glitz and glamour. They may have beautiful wives. You know, kids are successful. But I was like seeing the other side. Well, if you mess up, the fall from grace is hard as a mm-hmm. pastor because of the way people put you on a pedestal, you know, mm-hmm. and that there's a burden emotionally, physically, spiritually being a pastor because people sometimes bring their worst to you, mm-hmm. you know, and expose you only to the worst. It's not like, I just want to hang out and joke with you. I'm coming because my parent died or mm-hmm. my wife's in the hospital, you know, so it can weigh on you to an extent. So if I saw a lot of that, and then there are, to be honest, a lot of snakes and wolves mm-hmm. in religious circles. Um, and I know God will separate, you know, those type of things, but yeah, you, yeah. you have a lot of people in there and I'm not saying it's the majority by any means, but even one out of a hundred who have negative motives or intentions. Mm-hmm. And I think all sin is rooted in self-centeredness, you know? So we all are doing some of that, but others it's even higher mm. levels. So that I saw that and I didn't want any parts of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of ran from that and then I got exposed to STEM. I felt like that was something that kind of aligned with uh, my talents and interests. So I thought that was something I could do. And then my first job was somewhat similar to yours where I was at Target and I um, was supposed to be a cashier. That's what they hired me for. Mm-hmm. But then they kept having me push carts. And so it kind of reminded me of what you said where you know they had this plan for me even if they weren't being transparent about it. Yeah. And because I was getting a lot of hours and making a lot of money, I didn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> but then it was funny that towards the time I was finishing up there, they had the automated cart pusher. Mm. You know, so I'm out here in snow and rain and ice pushing these carts. Yeah. And they made it through engineering easier. Yeah. Which, again, energized me. Like, this is definitely a route to go towards because, look, the people who are making these things make life easier for people. And they profit off of, you know, fulfilling gaps and coming up with solutions to everyday mm. problems and struggles. And I always knew that I was intellectually gifted because, again, my parents, other members of my family, my teachers really poured into me and told me that was the case. So I'm doing this physical labor intensive type of job, even as a smaller guy. And I was young and had energy, so it wasn't mm-hmm. really bothering me. But I'm thinking, I'm meant to do things with my mind, not just with my body. Yeah, yeah. And I knew the racialized ways in which black men, specifically and black women also to an extent, have been put in labor type of jobs. And I looked at leadership. I only saw one black manager at Target. And then like you, I was thinking to myself, and that's why it didn't bother me at the time. This isn't gonna be my like full time yeah, job. Yeah. You know, I don't know what happened in your life to cause this to be your full time job, but that's not gonna be the case for me. I'm going on to yeah. do what people would call bigger and better things, and I just for me it just meant that that wasn't my path. So yeah, I struggled with the ministry calling. I only accepted that uh, publicly in recent years when I moved to Florida mm-hmm. uh, and started volunteering in my church, and then taking like a youth ministry uh, volunteer type of role. Um, but prior to that, I was running from it. I accepted the STEM thing. Uh, and then turn that from instead of pursuing industry to pursuing something in education. Mm-hmm. So with um, 
Now, I know uh, with purpose, I've learned with purpose, when you find purpose, almost it's not like you're alone, but there's a sense of loneliness to it. You have to be so uh, familiar with the place within you that you kind of have to, I don't think you have to isolate from people, but you have to have a sense of uh, just introspection that is just for you. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody can come there. Do you ever feel like, especially getting older and coming into purpose? Because I know for me, I don't know, I was always gone and my friends wouldn't see me and stuff and I was in my own world. But it was really because I was struggling to, or not even struggling, I was like just in the process of grinding out what I knew was my purpose and trying to build on that. Do you feel like uh, what having a purpose, does that separate you from people? And does that, is that like an inevitability? Yeah, so I say this with caution because one, I don't want to preach to the listeners out here. And I don't want to seem, you know, morally superior to them as well. No, yeah. But I, I try to really study the life of Jesus, and I know Jesus, he mixed with all different type of crowds, right? Mm-hmm. So he missed those who you normally wouldn't, like prostitutes, mm-hmm. uh, tax collectors, who at the time would have been similar to probably worse than a used car salesman or anyone like yeah. that. Someone was really taking advantage of people economically, uh, drunks. Uh, poor people, mm-hmm. uh, people diseased who you wouldn't even want to touch back then because we didn't have the medical advancements that we have now. So mm-hmm. you didn't know whether you could get it. Just like kind of like COVID, you know, yeah. you don't want to come close to people or touch them. But Jesus interacted with all of them. But his closest crowd was the disciples, you know. Yeah. So it shows me that, yeah, I can interact with all types of people, but I had to protect my inner circle. Yeah. You know, I can't let all types of people get in in my inner circle yeah but I, i'm willing to interact with anyone yeah yeah no i've I really lived like that myself yeah so i and, feel you on that and then jesus also because of his talents and ability to heal you mm-hmm. know mentally physically emotionally and spiritually it drew a crowd mm-hmm. but jesus had greater purpose because he knew he had limited time mm-hmm. so in doing that he was actually trying to limit the crowd so he could have real impact and mm-hmm. i think sometimes he was showing us that impact occurs on a smaller scale, even if everyone wants to witness it. Mm-hmm. And when he was unable to do impact because of the crowd, he would withdraw. Mm. And so there were times when he withdrew to the wilderness and he would just pray, you know, he would fast. And he even said that only some things can be solved through prayer mm. and through fasting. You know, and so those are things I try to remind myself that, yes, it is okay to withdraw from the world. It is okay to protect your inner circle. But at the same point in time, don't be snobbish to the point that you don't want to you know, interact with all walks of people mm-hmm. and don't be snobbish to the point that you can't ever go in front and draw a crowd, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I hear because you're a man of faith and I really like how, you know, you apply your intellectual mind to what you see in, you know, in Christianity, you know, it's just not something that just makes you feel or assume like you look for the intellectual value to better your intellect through it. So how much, because I know that at certain points, you you know, you became to be devoted to it. Where, how old were you when you became devoted to, like, the faith? I think it was always in me. And if I'm honest with you and with the vip, uh, listeners, I think it's in all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, so in my belief system, we are created in the image of God. And in the Bible, it actually says in our image, which is why people believe that there is a, um, a trinity. Mm-hmm. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So they said we were created in our image. Uh, and so from birth, we all are divinely created, which is another reason that you know racism is wrong and sexism is wrong, because there's no superior person, because we all are created in the image of God. Yeah, we're all created in a sense of our uh, superiority, yeah. yeah so, so humans are superior in the Bible to animals, 
but it still never tells us to abuse animals. Yeah. And yeah. it definitely doesn't say any human is more superior to another human. Yeah. Or that, like, black people should be written in the Constitution as being less than human. Mm-hmm. You know? And then justifying the type of enslavement that took place in the U.S. is even the slavery that took place in the Bible is not the same. Yeah. You know? So we need to be clear about those things. But I think we were all connected. And when I'm around children, and I don't know what it is because I still don't have children, um, you know, I believe I'll be blessed too. Yeah. And that there's some benefit in me being older and wiser to be able to handle the type of no, child that yeah, God's going to yeah. bring out. But kids gravitate towards me. Yeah. And even older people sometimes. And I think because young people have just come from God and older people are about to go back to God. Yeah. And they're completing that cycle of life. Yeah. And I think for us, if you really are true with yourself and you're not questioning the faith, because to me, there's more evidence. Uh, and there's even a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be a an Atheist, I believe, mm-hmm. is the name of it. Something similar to that. If you look at the science of the Big Bang Theory and all the things people even talk about with evolution uh, and global warming and all, all of these different laws, you know, mm-hmm. laws of thermodynamics, they all support the notion of a God. Mm-hmm. So there is more scientific and physical evidence of a God than there is not being yeah. a God, you know. And so because, again, I believe that evidence and I am in stone and I don't see it as counter to I see it as supporting yeah, yeah. my faith, then. I don't remember a time in which it wasn't there. And there were times in which I tried to stray away from it, as I mentioned, as a teenager to an extent. And I may have questioned it at times when, you know, like my parents got divorced and uh, my wife got sick and my Mm -hmm. father-in-law passed away. And I've had other family members, an aunt who passed away earlier than I would have uh, liked. I'm sorry, man. But then when you get a little bit outside of that and you're outside of your own feelings, you realize, well, even in death, there's peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you've dealt with you know cancer or harsh things like what we've dealt with with yeah. people we know there's a high level of suffering that takes place mm-hmm. to the point where you get to um, a mindset that it's better for that person to die yeah that's yeah than to live under these circumstances and I think if you haven't experienced that it makes death harder of a concept but if you have you know that yeah heaven is better yeah than sometimes like a hell we experience on earth yeah know? yeah. So one thing, okay, so it seemed like you have a, a understanding that religion and science are supporting factors because one thing that's always interesting to me with people is that they, they, they act like they're, they're, they're different. And I'm like, it's the left hand, right hand to me. Like they support each other in the ongoing of what we call God, what we believe to be God. So what is, a, um, what is your views on like the religion versus the scientific you know, approach to believing if there even is a God? So uh, a lot of work that I do as a researcher right now is qualitative. Mm-hmm. So it deals with like interviewing people. Uh, you could even observe people, do case studies. That's the same type of research that confirms Jesus. Mm-hmm. You had disciples again who lived with him, so they could give accounts similar to you. All. If I died today, my friends, my family could give accounts of my life, right? Because you all mm-hmm. witnessed it, you were there with me. Mm-hmm. And then when Jesus resurrected, there are people who could tell you he predicted this. Mm-hmm. We went to the tomb; it was not there. And then the icing on the cake is he actually came back to earth. We saw him. Mm-hmm. And they talk about Downing Thomas, who was one of the disciples. He touched the resurrected version of Jesus. Because he looked. Jesus looked different when he came yeah, back. Yeah, he had this glow to him, which I think is also showing that our body isn't going to be in the exact same state as it was when we were alive. It's this, like, I don't like, all difficult to even grasp version of our glorified version, mm-hmm. you know, of that body. And so... Uh, kind of going back to what you said about whether it supports it, goes against it, or how I know that. Again, the research I do is similar to the type of evidence that existed. But then you have other 
evidence I mentioned like Big Bang, which is more like the physical science hard aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The Bible did just start because God spoke it into existence. So mm-hmm. boom, just like the Big Bang, God spoke it and it was so. Mm-hmm. Which is similar to the Big Bang. They may not give evidence of the creator behind it, but what you could argue, because in science we know that energy um, is neither created nor destroyed, it just changes forms. Mm-hmm. So what was the energy behind it? It was God. And so God that's is what, the source, you know? Yeah, and that's when I first, when I was younger and I heard it, because I was raised very religious, so it was like you had to believe in God and I've always been scientific minded and understanding those principles. And when I first understood what they said energy was, was it's neither created nor destroyed, just transferred. I'm like, doesn't that sound like spirit? <laughs> you know, like it sounds like the spirit of everything. You can't kill it. It just has to transfer into a willing vessel or whatever it is. So, yeah, that's interesting, you know, that you bring that up. So, I mean, we've talked for a little bit. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about or put out because, you know, it's about time to wrap it up or whatever, you know. I would just say the the value of friendship. Uh, again, I'm not a parent, but I am an educator. I've been teaching for around ten years now. Um, the value of sending kids to schools that you know confirm who they are, um, that have kids who look like them. Because if you send, for instance, black kids in majority white schools or schools that are hostile, it may be difficult for them to get to adult years and actually have true friends. You know, mm-hmm. if you send black kids to predominantly white schools again that are hostile. Maybe hard for them to have teachers that we can look back on and speak so highly of like we were able to do. So I, I just wouldn't trust all of what you see on paper because mm-hmm. sometimes those quantitative metrics are uh, that red carpet. That way I put my best foot forward when behind the scenes, there's a lot more going on. Mm-hmm. And it's really just a gap in resources. Mm-hmm. And so the schools we went to, they had greater resources because there is a stat showing that I believe is, and don't quote me, but I think it may be like 20 something billion Mm. dollar difference between predominantly white schools and schools that serve predominantly black and brown students Jeez. 23 billion you know something like that um, it could That's be crazy it could be even higher but i'm my mind isn't always you know ready to quote some of these facts yeah and then again i lived it i saw that in the inner city our schools were crumbling at times the same schools that even some of our parents older people went to and you go see suburban schools that look like a college campus mm-hmm. you know and what they were provided instead of us. But then at these suburban schools, that's where schools were being shot up as we were getting older. Yeah, yeah. We had to go through metal detectors starting in middle school. Yeah. So why was I criminalized when the suburban affluent school that puts their best foot forward on the outside is really the ones dealing with stuff? And then I know in talking to you that, you know, drugs are going on in these schools and mm-hmm. hardcore drugs. Yeah, we might have had weed and some small scale stuff, but if yeah. you're poor, you can't even afford yeah. expensive hardcore drugs, which is what was happening in our community. So I would just caution parents against believing, you know, everything they see on paper about education. And to be honest, and I don't say this to praise myself, but invest in people like me who want to, you know, truly love on and teach our kids, you know? No, yeah, that's straight up, man. I think then we, we can get to a better place and challenging the government, voting, local, you know, national elections, investing in other black businesses. Yeah, yeah. And just doing more to try to like love on people, you know, and really get to know people. Man, that's a really beautiful notion, man. And I appreciate having you on, man. So I tell everybody we'll have to have you on again. So as time passes, we can get different perspectives on you and everything. But we're going to wrap it up and uh, highlight you guys later. Peace preparatory school, emperors and conquerors, pharaohs and followers, goblins and monsters, stone heart jewels and gold for the fools. The bones of the innocent is buckles on their boots. The jail overcrowded, they emptied out the school.